What I've been seeing is that at that stewardship level of governance and stewardship and ownership, that that role is typically not fulfilled in a manufacturing environment. So you have all the collection and contextualization pieces down the bottom, but you don't have one person or a team generally responsible for the quality of the data, the frequency of the data, the cleansing of the data, the format of the data. And so there's a gap in the large majority of businesses that I deal with. They expect the electricians to do it or you know, the automation guys to do it, but I'm not sure that that's necessarily their roles and responsibilities. Hi, and welcome to the Zen and the Art of Manufacturing podcast, where we help create calm and improve flow in manufacturing. Today, we have with us John Broadbent, all the way from Australia. Thanks for being with us, John. Thank you, Brian. It's actually like time traveling to talk to people in Australia because it's like, you're, it's tomorrow there. What's the future like? <laughs> <laughs> Wet. <laughs> um, so, John, uh, the reason why you know I wanted to have you on the podcast is that you you have a very long career in what we now call Industry 4.0, right? So, like through all the different iterations of that prior to when that was coined. So, what, just tell me about like when you got started and a little bit about the technology that existed at that at that point. So in the early 90s, I got involved in a factory build team. So the company was a building materials manufacturing company here in Australia. They had uh, international aspirations. And so they started a factory build process uh, with a relocation of a factory from Sydney that I'd previously been engineering manager at and responsible for automation process control and the whole engineering team. Um, I'd left the company six years previously, but I still obviously held, held knowledge. So they brought me in as a subject matter expert. We relocated that factory from Sydney to Kuala Lumpur. Uh, I loved the job. Uh, and then in 1995, they built an absolute world-class state-of-the-art uh, glass wool insulation factory in China, uh, just across the border from Macau, when Macau was owned by the Portuguese and Hong Kong was still you know, leased by the British, right. uh, which is a fascinating experience working for a whole 12 months. Um, I was responsible in that job for the skater only. And then in 1996, they built a rock wool factory, which is the heavy duty or slag wool, as some people call it, insulation factory in Thailand in an industrial area about an hour out of Bangkok, uh, southeast. It was a beautiful part of the world. Um, and fortunately for me, because of previous experience, I got the job of writing every line of PLC code and also the SCADA system. So I got to commission you know, all my own work learned an enormous amount from that. But then in the three months that I was sort of left uh, behind to do the training and the onboarding and all the commissioning, I got the rare opportunity to actually have a good look at the production process and realise that if we could just integrate certain bits of information from certain parts of the factory, we could do a hell of a lot more. And so I was given pretty well carte blanche to play. Um, and I spent three months doing some extraordinary stuff and achieved some incredible results, some theories which had been bandied around in the slag wool production area around the world for years about these theories about how you could predict certain things might happen based on certain parameters. And because I had the good skater knowledge, I was able to make modifications to systems, start collecting data, prove whether the algorithms that people were talking about were actually true, and then do some predictive control. So this was 1996 when the PLCs were connected by coax. <laughs> um, and we're running on Windows 3. One one from memory, so yeah, a lot of learnings in those days. Tell me about the SCADA systems. So number one, like a lot of people listen to this, they're not super techy. So what is the SCADA system? And yes, tell us a little bit about what it was doing in these plants. 
So if you imagine your car, you've obviously got your engine management computer that's collecting all the information, but the dashboard is only the bit that you see, which is some key information, you know, how fast you're going, maybe where you're going, how much fuel you've got in your tank. Um, a SCADA system stands for uh, System Control and Data Acquisition, and really it's just a, an, an interface, a, a dashboard, a view into what the PLC system, the control systems are, are actually doing underneath. So for the factory in Thailand, we had maybe 40 pages of information which had everything that was going on in the factory you know, the motors were running the valves were open liquids were flowing temperatures of various processes so this actually gave them a window not only into what was going on in the process but allowed them to change values and, and, and control certain processes as well so for example they could set temperatures of ovens and speeds of conveyors and all this sort of stuff from a central control room just to reiterate so it, it allowed you to collect all this data present it in a way so the people in the control room, like running the plant, could understand what's happening. And then in addition to that, you know, the control part of SCADA, you can make changes to it, and then that affects change out on, on the floor and how the processes are running, right? Yes, and then information that was collected, some of which was historically stored. So you could then have a look at trends of temperature or line speeds, for example, um, and that helped then produce shift reports of, the, you know, how many packets of, of stuff we made, um, how much losses we had, how much went in the front end, how much came out the back end, and all the losses in between. What's interesting about this is every time you know you bring up industrial IoT or industry 4.0 to somebody that's you know our age or older, they're like, ah, we've been doing that for 30 years. And literally <laughs> what you just described is what a lot of companies pitch today, right? We're gonna collect all this data we're going to give you these mm -hmm. dashboards. I mean, it's what we do to a certain extent. We do a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, productivity stuff too. But, but it really did exist in the '90s and even even before. Yes, the, inter the integration was more complex and a little bit more challenging. And we only integrated the factory systems. Yeah. Um, but I think you know, Industry Four, <clears throat> the smart factory concept's been around for a while. But what Industry Four, as a concept, has given us is the ability to now connect systems that normally uh, out of the box wouldn't talk to each other and i think it's as you know brian my my passion is the secret source of industry 4.0 and smart factories for me has always been integration <clears throat> and i still believe that today that without understanding how to integrate all that information and use it wisely um, we're really not leveraging the opportunity that's there in front of us yeah yeah and i, I want to i definitely want to get to that because it sounds like what the topic that we were going to talk about today is is what John calls stewardship, but it's it's sort of the cross section between IT and OT and who owns those systems. Hmm. But it sounds like from what you're describing is like you were that person in these plants. Yes, and in 2003, I was grateful to be included in a team that built one of Australia's largest infrastructure projects, and it was a nickel mine called the Ravensthorpe Nickel Operation in southwest West Australia, middle of nowhere. They basically built an entire town um, around the mine, and that was a four billion Australian dollar, so three billion US dollar project. And I did the integration, uh, responsible for the integration in that business, but it wasn't only what I called the horizontal integration between the disparate systems, everything from a 2 million tag distributed control system. Uh, but there were 63 systems in that landscape that all needed to share information with each other. And I learned a very important lesson on that job with a solution architect that I worked with who said, imagine if we have one system and another system we build an interface between those. Then we had a third system and now we've got two more interfaces to build. And then we had a fourth system. So now we've got three more interfaces to build. 
And by the time you increase that to 63 systems, you end up with a complete rat's nest um, and a system that's completely unmaintainable. How do you test an interface? How do you commission an interface? How do you regression test an interface if you replace one of those systems? And he introduced me to the concept of hub and spoke where the hub is the integration platform and you spoke out to the peripheral systems and that's the architecture that yeah. we chose on that job and it was a complete success. And that hub and spoke arrangement is what I've used uh, since 2003 with with, with always um, 100% success rate because you don't have to worry about the cross-integration between those satellite systems. They just sit out there as islands effectively. You connect with them from the hub and then you pull information and route traffic accordingly. That makes sense. Tell me, before we dive into all of that, I, I am very curious, though, about this predictive stuff that you were doing in the 90s mm-hmm. at that plant. So what kind of things were you predicting? And it also sounded like not only were you predicting these things, but you were the system was automatically making modifications based on the prediction? Yes. So the raw material is actually rock. Mm-hmm. It's called, called rock wool. Uh, they melt it in a furnace. And the furnace is optimized to produce slag, not iron. Uh, the iron is tapped off and goes to waste. And there was a theory around the world that these couplers, the, the blast furnaces, cycled over long periods of time, hours, where they'd melt a little bit heavy, melt a little bit light, melt a little bit heavy, melt a little bit light. So 20 to 30 minutes after the slag was poured onto four large-ish spinning steel tyres, the slag is poured on and it's spun off these tyres literally like candy floss. So you end up with these very long uh, fibres of rock. Yeah, uh, It settles down, it's sprayed with a binding agent, then it's put through an oven and cooked and cut and all that sort of stuff. And so the theory was that you could actually predict what the cupola, the blast furnace, was actually melting in kilograms per hour. I got really curious during that three months where I really had nothing to do but you know help the team commission the plant and come on board and I was really there as a bit of a steward as you say and what I decided to do was say well the theory was that the current being measured on the motors would tell you whether the cupola was melting heavy or low because if it wasn't melting if it was melting at the low side the current would be low if it was melting at the high side the current would be high so I just started we had smart motor controllers in those days so I started trending the current on each of those motors and found that it was very erratic so that was a disappointment. So then I thought, okay, maybe if I sum, so I summed the power consumption current uh, being used on those motors and found that was also erratic but smoother. And then I found in the PLC I could put in a effectively a FIFO cube um, and do an average, you know, put the stuff into a buffer and do an average over a period of time and I could set what that period of time was. And I found if I, I did like a 10 to 12 second moving average, I got a really beautiful trend. <laughs> and so I started trend that summed um, smoothed out current value and then I went I would put a marker on the on the wall as it was coming out of the front end uh, in the conveyor on the on the wall and I would literally walk that wall down to the end and then I'd get the guys to weigh the material by the square meter so I then started to say well based on this current that was the melt rate and I collected about 15 data points put them into an excel spreadsheet and lo and behold it was a linear equation so I was. I thought I'd hit. Uh, I hit the eureka moment. So then I said to the guys, "Look, I'm going to put this algorithm into the PLC, and I'm going to control the downstream line speed because it was a master-slave drive system. I'm going to control the downstream line speed based on the current from these motors because if they're high current, we're melting heavy. We can run faster. If it's low current, running slow, 
we can run lower. Because what used to happen is when it ran slow, if you had a constant line speed, you were either giving stuff away when it melted heavy, when it melted light, your packs weren't the right weight, so you had to chuck them away. So we had predictive line control based on this. And the $400,000 density variance budget in that first 12 months ended up at zero. Wow, that's cool. So I got a pat on the back for that and thank you very much and have a nice life, you know. (laughs) (laughs) No no cut of the savings, I guess. (laughs) No cut of the savings. But I mean, for me as an engineer, it got it was me applying everything that I'd learned, my mechanical engineering, my process control engineering, um, you know, some, some basic maths and some regression testing of stuff. And it was a, a three month project that for me went, wow, if you can do this sort of stuff, the benefits are astounding. Yeah, well, and I guess that I don't guess, but that is the theory behind what everybody's trying to do today. Right. With AI and predictive models and all that. You you did it right way back in what everybody considers the low tech 90s. 96, yeah. I'm 311. <laughs> it does for work groups. You do a lot of stuff with that. So that, I mean, that's really cool. And and uh, I think what's interesting about that story too is that you have to have a decent amount of knowledge beyond just the programming, beyond just, you have to understand the process and what's going on. It's not just throwing data into a bucket and then whoo, it tells you what you need to do to fix it. No. But machine learning today, I think, is providing, you know, we won't come to that a little bit later, but machine learning as a concept, I think, today is providing extraordinary opportunity. And sadly, a lot of people are afraid of it through purely and simply a lack of understanding of what it is. And, yeah, this, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that as I guess we talked this morning, this afternoon for you. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I also think it's overhyped and, and there's a lot of complexity around making it work. But so, yeah, so let's, let's go back like to the beginning here of, of what we were talking about. So the idea, and John kind of came up with this this word, this stewardship idea of somebody that's kind of bridging the gap between all of these different areas and understanding these systems. What is this role? Like, how did it come about? Like, how did you start thinking about somebody as being a steward of, the, of these systems? And kind of where do they fit? I know it's not a question. I saw, I saw a, um, a pyramid model that was done. I think it was Lux or LNS research, it was one of those. And as soon as I saw it, I went, oh, wow, that's so incredible for business in general. But I then modified it and reapplied it more to our industry, you know, manufacturing and particularly around process control. And what it showed me is that at the bottom layer of the pyramid, you have the collection piece. So you've got to be able to, you know, get to the equipment, collect the data. That That's the fundamental foundational piece. It's like having the engine management computer in your car um, that collects, you know, thousands of data points per second. So you've got to be able to collect it then you have to do something with it. And the next layer up was the contextualization piece. So you might take some of that data and it might go into a SCADA system or a HMI, human machine interface, or a manufacturing execution system or a database, but you do something with it to give it meaning. And then the next layer they talked about was the level of governance and stewardship. And because I've worked in the SAP to plant floor factory integration space previously for almost 20 years, I came across the rigor with which IT departments, CIOs in particular, would run their master data team. So if you're a, you know, a global, a Nestle, a Mars, a, a Kellogg's, a, a Colgate, Palmolive, Procter & Gamble, et cetera, and you're running, for example, SAP, you can't get an entry like a, a raw material or a product or um a supplier record or anything like that inside the SAP system without going through a rigorous master data process. And companies will typically have master data teams that monitor and supervise and govern all of that. On top of that, when the 
business intelligence piece then starts reporting on that data, which is usually the lag measures, the variance and the profit and loss and all that sort of stuff. It, it works because the data underneath is secure and it's relatively clean. What I've been seeing is that at that stewardship level of governance and stewardship and ownership, that that role is typically not fulfilled in a manufacturing environment. So you have all the collection and contextualization pieces down the bottom, but you don't have one person or a team generally responsible for the quality of the data, the frequency of the data, the cleansing of the data, the format of the data. And so there's a gap in the large majority of businesses that I deal with. They expect the electricians to do it or you know, the automation guys to do it, but I'm not sure that that's necessarily their roles and responsibilities because with the business intelligence piece that sits on top of that, in my view, comes the manufacturing intelligence piece. The business intelligence piece is the day, week, uh, month, quarter, year, and the manufacturing intelligence piece is the day, shift, hour, minute, second. And it's that granular information and being able to collect that and report on that in real time, the lead measures of the business rather than the lag measures of the business, where I see the most value in Industry 4.0 and, and the whole smart factory stuff. But to do that, you've got to make sure that the stuff you're collecting it ha- has value and, and is actually uh, cleansed and, 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 and valid data. I know a company recently I went out to meet and they're collecting 30,000 tags per second. And I call it drinking out of the fire hose because they're just drowning in all this information and they could have some absolute gold in there that they, if they knew what, what it was and how to mine it. But it's lost in so much noise because no one person owns the governance and stewardship or one group owns the governance and stewardship of that whole piece. And that's just one machine in their, in their, in their plan. A lot of what you mentioned is big company stuff. You know, like having master data management people for SAP and Oracle and stuff like that, you see that a lot. Mm-hmm. But if I'm a 20 to 150 or $200 million manufacturing company, I don't run SAP. I don't have a master mm-hmm. data management group. What does that look like in my company? The smaller businesses that I'm dealing with, one is a, a currently 120, 130 million. They're running in for M3 as their ERP, and they still have one person does their BI another person does their master data. They still have a master data person who's responsible for making sure that all the data going into their ERP is valid. They have a business analyst who takes care of that uh, liaison, if you like, with the business. They have probably a good dozen automation systems. And the challenge that they're having is it's taken me 12 months to convince a CEO they need to employ what I call an industrial systems engineer who can take ownership and stewardship. I, I do believe that even at, at 100 to $200 million, organizations will still have someone in that role. You can't just have any Joe or Jane, you know, log on to, to your Microsoft Dynamics or your NetSuite or whatever, they just pump data in, but it doesn't work like that. You're still going to have someone who's responsible, even if you're doing your own accounting system on zero. Yeah. You know, you've still got to have someone responsible for putting that data in and making sure it's correct. Yeah, we, and so we see that too. I mean, we have a lot of smaller customers. We have a lot of big customers too. But on the low end, it's a really weird hybrid role because it's you have technical knowledge that you can understand data. You're typically somebody that understands manufacturing and the processes around it. You hopefully have a little bit of authority to do stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And you are somewhat of a technology person. Yes. Like it, you know, you have to be willing to learn new things. Yes. And so in a smaller, in a smaller environment, like we've seen it, you know, people like you said, like sometimes it falls on continuous improvement. Sometimes it falls on an analyst. Sometimes it's a BI person. But yeah, it can be a it can be a huge, mm-hmm. a huge challenge. And it seems like I, I'll ask you this question. I, I probably know the answer. Like, 
John, really, how hard can it be for me to slap this photo eye onto a conveyor belt and just make sure the counts are right? Not that hard. <laughs> so where do the, you know, the 30,000 tags a second, like I get that. But like at, at this, if I'm looking at a relatively simple machine, like what are the things that I have to worry about? What are the challenges that I run into? Well, <clears throat> typically, how much have you made? With this one company I've been doing, I helped build back in 2015. I was, again, integration lead on that job. The existing team uh, over time moved on. The new guard came in, uh, really an imported team that came out from the UK who didn't really understand the requirement to maintain the systems that were put in at the beginning. I've kept close association with that business and now been working for them for almost 18 months, sort of two days a week in an industry four program manager's role and smart factory advisory role, but to make sure look through their business and their process to see where they've fallen off the wagon. And they sadly have, you know, lots of what I call island kit that they've gone out and bought bits and pieces and forgotten to integrate it within the smart factory network. And we've just gotten to the point where the CEO is now finally convinced they do need an industrial systems engineer. But an important factor in that conversation with him was that one of the reasons that we're not making the progress that we need to make in this business is that when we need to make a change to process, so the team improvement managers, the guys on the floor, guys and gals on the floor will say, if we could do this, it would make such a difference. So they come up with an idea. Now, we don't have anybody internally who can, as you said before, it's a multi-disciplined role. We don't have anybody at the moment in the business who can do all of that. So we go and we talk to the PLC guy and we get a quote from him. We go and talk to the MES guys and we get a quote from them. We go and talk to the Wonderware uh, SCADA people and we get a quote from them. We go and talk to an engineer who knows how to, you know, kept where and collect the tags and blah, blah, blah. And before we know it, we've now got four quotes from external contractors and then we put the price together to do this little piece of work. Right. And the return on investments down the toilet and they go, oh, it's too expensive. We're not going to do it. Yeah, that's because we're using four bloody subcontracting companies to solve all this problem for us because it's it's a multidisciplined approach. And there might be a bit of IT in there as well. Whereas an industrial systems engineer style person with a bit of continuous improvement skill set can do all of that. He can make the PLC change, he can make the SCADA change, he can get the tags in the kept where he can put them into the process historian and he can take that piece of data and put it on a dashboard or at least make it available for the BI guys, business intelligence guys, to put on a, on a weekly report or something like that. And that's a sunk cost anyway because the guy's on the payroll. And, no, it's a good point. And the, the thing that we've seen a lot is the data you think is important in the beginning may not be the data you actually need. Absolutely. For, for example, like we, we talked about this when we were planning the podcast, fault codes coming out of machines, right? Mm-hmm. You know, something could happen and you get 15 different fault codes. What's the root cause, right? We don't know. Yes. It's probably first in, first out. Or they open the door on a machine. And, okay, was that the problem or was there some other problem? You know, so um, having somebody on staff that can take, even if you use an outside vendor, but can start there and then make the, and iterate over it, right? And make those changes. It makes it more valuable to you as a company over time. Yes. And, and in a job that I had after I graduated and they went into this um, engineering managers, well, originally a project engineer, maintenance engineer, then an engineering manager's role. I had obviously job goals, you know, KPIs, but I had a personal job goal mm-hmm that every year I would save four times my annual salary simply through process improvement. Now, considering back in the mid-80s, I think I was earning about 30000 a year, so say 20000 US a year back in the in the mid-80s as an engineering manager. 
we had a million dollars consumption in gas, a million dollars in energy, electricity, a million dollars in glass as a glass wall insulation plant, and a million dollars in resin. So there straight away I had $4 million in full raw materials effectively as an opportunity to save money. And so to save 80 grand a year <laughs> across $4 million was really easy. Yeah. Was that 0.05%? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in the conversation with the CEO the other day, I said, you do realise, I think you're 120 million P&L, this business. Uh, we're looking at a budget of around 120,000 Australian a year, so say 90 US for a, you know, a 28 to 32-year-old industrial systems engineer. That's about the sort of price point here. And I said to him, he's got to save 0.12% of the P&L to pay his way. 1.12%. 